This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We've been in the book of Acts, um, and we're doing a little uh, detour here. And today I want to look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and the life of Paul. We are in a little mini-series that we are calling Weakness. Weakness, God's power in our frailty. Weakness. I mean, even the sound of it is offensive. I mean, nobody, we made the point last week that, that we are allergic to weakness. We do everything possible to cover our weaknesses, to hide our weaknesses, not to display and acknowledge, certainly not to celebrate. Or boast in our weaknesses. And so last week we just talked about how the Bible um, reveals God as one who, uh, who wants us to acknowledge our weaknesses for then we find his power. We talked about personal weaknesses last week. How we all have mental weaknesses and physical weaknesses relational weaknesses, spiritual weaknesses. There are sins in our lives that we are, we're caught in, and, and the way out of the trap is not to ignore or hide, but to reveal and to boast in the power of God, to, to set us free. We talked about, I, I shared some of my own, various weaknesses that I'm struggling with. Um, we just gave a categorical list. If you weren't here last week, you could get that, that message. Just go to the website and you can stream it, listen to it live, or you can download it, or you could subscribe to the podcast. But uh, I'd recommend you, you listen to last week because it was kind of a foundational message for us. And I trust it's a, it, it will become more and more a defining theme for us. It's just not a popular message. We talked about corporate weaknesses. We are weak as a church. I said, if I could use one word to describe us, it would be weak. It would be weak. Now, hopefully, it, it, I mean, hopefully it doesn't scare you off if, if you're new here. We're just trying to run at our weaknesses. We talked about how we are, many of us have said goodbye to friends over the last year, and there's a, rel- there's a tearing there. We feel weak. We talked about the fact that uh, we're financially facing some limitations, and so there is a, a weakness there. We talk about, we talked last week about a volunteer army, which has shrunk in some ways and just talked about our own weaknesses. And the truth is that none of us like to acknowledge weakness. There's an article that came out this past week by a uh, popular Christian blogger, Tim Challies. And in this, he talked about how our tendency is because we know brash arrogance is offensive, we tend to cloak our pride, cloak our strength, cloak our arrogance in humility. And he, he, he made the point that a new word has been introduced into the dictionary. I, I don't know if you read these articles, but each year there's new words that make it into the dictionary. I always find that fascinating. And he said the Macmillan Dictionary this year uh, put a new word in, the word humble brag. One word, humble brag. Here's the definition, quote, a statement in which you pretend to be modest but which you are really using as a way of telling people about your success or achievements. A statement that you 
a statement that you pretend to be modest, but you're really, it's a way of telling about your achievements. And then ta- that's the definition. Chally says, it's bragging in the guise of humility. It's putting a thin veneer of humble over a clear expression of proud. And it seems to be an integral part of an effective social media presence. And then he goes on to say how the humble brag has become societally acceptable primarily through social media, uh, through Facebook, through Twitter, uh, various other forms of social media. And so he goes on to just give examples. And he gives examples that are largely used by leaders or famous people or stuff like that. He talks about how there's differing ways that people who have a ton of Twitter or followers or a ton of fans on Facebook, that they, they keep the masses interested in them by sharing these kinds of things. So he gives a number. I think these are all fictitious, though some of them sound... I, I follow a lot of leaders on Twitter and see various things. Some of these sound real to me, but I think they're all fictitious he says, you know, you can kind of humbly brag about what you own. So, so here's, a, here's a comment. Here's a post on Facebook or, a, or a, a, a tweet. It says, quote, when I bought this Ferrari, no one warned me I'd get pulled over all the time. It, it, humility would be saying, I get pulled over all the time because I'm impatient, because I'm a lawn to myself and I break the traffic rules, because I don't care about other people. But he says, oh, no, blame it on the Ferrari. If it wasn't for the Ferrari, I wouldn't get pulled over. Everybody's a rider today, aren't they? So he says, here's, here's a humble brag. My fingers are aching from typing my memoir all day. <laughs> yeah, everybody's a professional photographer. Everybody's going to write a book. Everybody's a professional chef. But, you know, I'm typing all day writing my memoir because there's just scads of people who are, who are hanging on my every word, waiting to hear about my fascinating life. A humble brag. Sometimes he says you can hide a humble brag in a question. If you ask a question, it doesn't appear so arrogant. Here, here is a, uh, here's a tweet. Is anyone else going to be at the White House tonight? It would be great to meet up. No, I'm not going to be at the White House tonight. Or again, here's another one. Does anyone know if you can claim a yacht as a home office? I'm, I'm just troubled. I'm, so the humble is, I'm ignorant. I really don't know about tax law. I need someone to inform me about this issue. Can a yacht be counted as a home office? Or he says, you, sometimes you can feign embarrassment or awkwardness. He mentions a guy named Jim Gaffigan. If you don't know him, he's a very funny comedian. He says, that awkward, here's a tweet, that awkward moment when you ask Jim Gaffigan to sign a book and he asks you to sign yours. Oh, that's just terrible. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> or he gives one called a grumble humble when you're just complaining, but it's about how great you are. Here's one, tried shopping on Amazon and they recommended my own book to me. Fail. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So these are humble brags. They're just ways. It's mostly all of what Facebook is. It's a presentation of a life that I want you to think. It's, it's not reality. It's glowing pictures. It's not, hey, can I just share with everybody that my marriage isn't what you think it is? We, we give an image of strength, but we're really struggling. I, I'm waiting for that post. That's just not who we are. We, we humble brag. We hate weakness. We hate it. We oppose it. And so we're talking about, we're trying to identify weakness very clearly. We're in a series that's leading up to an offering. This is all, this this series is built around our mission and vision as a church and our plans to move forward in building. 
in Frisco Square. And so we have thought uh, that rather than uh, just, ex, you know, sort of motivate by glorious grand strength that we would just look at weakness because that is where the power of God is found. I want to address the topic head on to embrace weakness because that is the key to fruitful ministry. That is a key to a godly life. And today I want to look at the Apostle Paul. And this is going to be interesting because we've been studying the Apostle Paul in Acts. And I want to look at Corinthians. This is the next place he goes. So when we pick Acts back up in Acts 18, this is where we'll start, is Corinth. And we're going to read what he writes to the Corinthians here. He talks about visiting them. Let's read, I'm going to read verses 2, chapter 2, 1 through 5, but I want to start by reading up a little bit. So look at 130. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. God, we pray that, that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I pray that we would embrace God-ordained weaknesses, and I pray that we would boast in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would become a people that are more familiar with bragging, but it is a bragging about you. Not a humble brag, not a bragging veiled in self, uh, self-exaltation, veiled in humility, but Lord, we want to really brag on you. We want to really celebrate you. We want to really point to you. We want really to become less that you may become greater in our midst. And so I pray that the very weaknesses in our individual lives and in our families and in our church would be a place that we run to you in open acknowledgement, asking for forgiveness, asking for strength, asking for power. So Lord, speak to us through this text today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the context of what we just read. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and in verses 18 through 25, he has talked about the fact that his message is foolishness to the world. Look at verse 18. He says, the word of the cross is folly, that's foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, the message I brought to you, the world thinks it's ridiculous, it's mockable, it's laughable, it's a joke, it's foolish, it's weak. To celebrate a crucified king, it's an oxymoron, a crucified savior king. How can that be? How can a, how, how can a ruling king, how can a Messiah who comes to deliver die before delivering? It's crazy to the world. So in 25 through 31, he's talking about the foolishness of his message. In 26 through 31, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. In uh, 18 through 25. In 26 through 31, he's talking about kind of the foolishness of God picking the people he picked. So he talks to the people there in... um, 
Corinth and he says to them, look, we are not much. We are unimpressive. Think about your life yourself. You're not much. You're not noble. You're not powerful. You're not wise. You're not glorious in any way. So our message was a message that's foolishness to the world. Our church is made up of unimpressive people who are not impressive to the world. That's what he says in the second section about Corinth. And now he's going to talk about the fact, he's going to talk about himself, and he's going to say, look, I didn't come to you to impress you with me. I came to impress you with Jesus. He's going to say, I am a weak person. So I preach a weak message among weak people who are saved, and I came to you in weakness. That's what he talks about. Paul is contrasting himself with, um, with the speakers of his day. In Corinth, which is, uh, which is where he went after he went to Athens, which we studied in chapter 17 of Acts, Corinth was Greek, and the people here were enamored with Greek rhetoric, that is speech, Greek speech, philosophy, um, and the most influential people in their culture were these traveling speakers. So there were traveling speakers who would come into town and seek to use highly skilled rhetoric. They would speak in flamboyant ways, waxing on and on about philosophy, politics, religion, uh, and they would, they, they would be viewed as sort of these wisdom gurus who would collect money and gather a following. Sometimes they'd almost have speaking competitions. I, I read sometimes at a, at a fancy banquet between courses, several speakers, several rhetoricians, which is someone who does rhetoric, several rhetoricians would stand up and make some kind of appeal, some kind of using logic, wisdom, philosophy, so, and, and dramatic uh, presentation, and they'd be awarded by applause, and the one who won the most applause was the winning speaker. So very different culture from us today. They were into intellectual-sounding speech. It was a popular form of entertainment. I mean, how different? I can't even imagine. We talked about this in Athens. I can't even imagine living in a culture like this. Who goes to hear a speech, especially one that's philosophical or political? Maybe on a university campus. But we don't go, we're not looking for wisdom gurus to speak to us. We get our wisdom off Duck Dynasty. We are a high, highly evolved culture that is, uh, is brilliant. And, uh, but they really lived in a different way. And so Paul is contrasting his message with the ministry style, the delivery, the content of the popular rhetorician. A rhetorician, by definition, is a person whose speech is pompous or extravagant. And they're impressed with that. They find that intellectually strong. They find that emotionally compelling. And so someone who could use words to draw people in, even in a speaking battle, uh, that is something that impressed them. And Paul says, look, that's not how I came. I came with a different message. Look what he says. I, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a decision he made. When I came, I decided. The NIV says, I resolved. I made a resolved intent of my heart that when I came to you, when I came to your city, I would have none of that nonsense. I came with a simple message. I came with a deliberate message that focused on the work of Christ, the person and the work of Christ. His message to them was so focused on Jesus, so focused on the work of Christ that he could actually say, I didn't know anything else but that. Now that's, that's, that's probably a way of speaking. Obviously, Paul speaks about other things. If you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, you see he speaks about a lot of stuff. He speaks about divisions. 
in the church. He speaks about marriage. He speaks about idolatry. He speaks about spiritual gifts. Uh, He has a whole chapter on the resurrection. He speaks about all kinds of different things. But he says that my message was so focused on Christ that everything I talked about was connected to him. Every topic I addressed was connected to Jesus and his death. My focus, my burden, my heart, my vision was Jesus-centered. It was cross-focused. It was, we could say, cross-shaped. His message was cross-shaped. I, we've talked to a number of architects that helped design our building. And at one time, one of them used a word that is stuck with me. I actually looked it up. But he, he talked about how sometimes buildings, church buildings, um, will, will be kind of long this way. And then there'll be a section that crosses it this way so that the building is cruciform meaning that the design of the building, a traditional church building, oftentimes was designed like a cross, cross-shaped. The word cruciform means cross-shaped. Paul could say that he had a cruciform message. What was Paul's preaching like? It was cruciform. It was cross-shaped. It was molded by the message of Jesus and his death, his resurrection. This is what he came proclaiming. Look at verse one. I didn't come to you, I, uh, I, did, I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony. When I came, I came pro- proclaiming to you the testimony of God, but I didn't do that with lofty speech or wisdom. So I didn't come with the stylistic delivery of the people of your culture. I came in a different way. I came preaching Christ. He is saying that no matter what the issue, Christ was the center of it all in his death. Now, sometimes Paul will use, in this case in particular, I think, will use the death of Christ as sort of a shorthand for the whole gospel. Uh, Jesus, he obviously knew more than the death of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, he defines his gospel, and he says it is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture, that Jesus was buried And that Jesus raised on the third day and appeared to many people. So he says that his gospel included the the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection. Acts 1 also gives us the ascension of Christ. So that's a full gospel, a full good news message. But he can speak of the death of Christ as the heart, as the center of it all. And he's saying, when I was with you, this is the nail that I pounded. I over and over and over told you of a crucified Messiah. I told you of an, this is important, of an executed king, an executed savior king. I told you of what the Old Testament calls the suffering servant. I told you of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. I told you of the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's how John the Baptist referred to him. This is the one I told you about. This was the message I was entrusted with. This was what I shared with you. And it is verse 18, foolish to the world. It is silly. It is nonsensical. It is unimpressive. And it's important to the Corinthians that he reminds them, this is what I focused on. Because as you read the book, they think they're heavenly. They think they're living heaven on earth. Uh, Some would even believe that they think they can speak with angelic tongues because they believe they're already like living in heaven. They have this over-realized view of glory. And Paul wants to say, I didn't come to you talking about an over-realized view of glory. I came to you talking about Jesus and him crucified. And in that message, we find the very 
power of God. We are so familiar with the message of the cross, if most of us, I can't speak for all of us, but if you're a Christian, you've attended church regularly, then you are very familiar with the message of Jesus Christ crucified. We're so familiar, and we forget how countercultural this idea is. It is so different. It flew in the face of the Corinthians. They celebrate glory, wisdom, power, articulacy. They celebrate all of these other things. They, they celebrate fame and celebrity. And he comes to him saying, I, that's not what I came to tell you about fame and celebrity and glory. I came to tell you about Jesus who was despised and rejected. And we, we can forget that part. Seek, seeking to wrap Jesus Wrap Jesus all up in cool and accessible. And yet the message of the cross will always be folly to those who are perishing, verse 18. And you can't do away with that truth. We can't lessen the horrific nature of the cross. We cannot minimize the offense. Jesus is cursed. He is executed in a most dehumanizing way. The cross is repugnant. In polite society, Romans wouldn't even speak of crucifixion. Paul's message cuts against the grain. He says, we're glorying in a God-man who was completely rejected, who was naked and beaten and publicly shamed. He was scandalously killed. And this isn't just a Good Friday message. Paul's saying, that's all I talked about. Was this Jesus sacrificed for sins, absorbing the judgment that we deserved? And what he's saying is, hey guys, that wasn't a very entertaining message to you. That wasn't a very entertaining message in your culture. Everybody didn't say, wow, that fits right in with our worldview. Let's add that to the pantheon of gods. Let's take that and put him with all the other gods that we worship in Greece. It wasn't an overly entertaining message. And listen, Christ crucified, that doesn't dazzle those in our culture today. Those who live off the sugar high of pop culture. They're just not going to be dazzled by a crucified, bloody, executed God-man. Everybody's not just running to that idea where we live as well. It's sobering. It's horrific. And among other things, it communicates to us that we are sinners. Now, the cross communicates the love of God like nothing else. But it communicates the love of God via the vehicle of this truth. We are under his judgment because of our sins, and yet he loves us so much that he takes the judgment for us. That is the love of God, First John writes. People in our culture just assume God loves them. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't God love me? He, I'm special. Everybody's special in his or her own way. That's what the purple dinosaur taught me as a child. Everybody is special. You're special, you're special, you're spe- and there's a degree to which, I'm not mocking, there's a degree to which that is true. Everyone is created in the image of God. So everyone has value by nature of being created in the image of God, to be sure. People assume God loves them. Paul is saying that th- this, this shocking truth is so, it wakes us up, and it's just not dazzling everybody. It, it doesn't make sense to intellectuals, that's what he's saying, it's foolishness. The intellectual elite are never going to say, wow, that's a fascinating story on their own. They're never going to be impressed with that. It doesn't stir the passion 
of sort of the detached hipster mentality, where I'm just sort of cynical and detached, and that person is not going to say, whoa, I'm passionately moved by that reality, unless the power of God touches them. It's just not going to persuade the hipster. It's, it's, it's not going to pique the interest of the person who is caught up in material wealth. The person who is worshiping the God of image, there's not a lot of bling in the cross. And we can bejewel it and put it on a shirt and wear it around our neck and sort of give it some bling, but it never has the bling if we really understand what it means. It's just never going to be say, wow, that's jewelry and spectacular before my eyes. They're going to say, that what? People do not want to hear the message of a crucified Savior. It did not fly in Corinth, and it does not fly with those who are not believing its message. And yet Paul said he knew that. He went to Corinth. He's the one who said, I know this is foolishness to everybody. Paul stood up. We read last uh, two weeks ago, he stood up at the Areopagus. Mars Hill, what did they do? They laughed, especially when he got to the resurrection. It was the resurrection there that stirred their mocking. But the cross and resurrection, he knows that it's not going to be the, everything's going to be, everyone's going to be excited about that. He can't sort of package this. He can't make the sacrificial death of Jesus enduring the wrath of God for our sins, that that's not instantaneously relevant to everybody's mind. But he doesn't dress up the message. He doesn't dress it up, and he doesn't tone it down. He brings it. He brings it. When I was with you, that's all I knew, people. That's what he reminds them of. And it was the power of God. And he says, this is my only hope. And it's our only hope too, church. We have no other hope. Listen, you you don't have anything else to offer your kids that's going to change their eternity but the message of a crucified and risen Savior. That there's not something else to offer. We don't have anything to offer the culture. We may be able to make some modest improvements to alleviate some suffering. But we're not going to change anybody's life, change their eternity apart from this message, which is stark, which is in our face, and yet which is our great hope. Because it's not only folly to those who are perishing, verse 18, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We don't like weakness, we like power, but we only touch power when we embrace weakness. We only touch power when we encounter the weakness of a crucified Savior who rose to give us new life, to defeat the power of sin, to defeat the power of death and give us new life. That's the only place we touch power. And the only place we touch power is when we acknowledge our own weaknesses, vying, asking for God's strength. So as we think about our own future, even as we dream about how could we touch our city, how could we proclaim the gospel As we think about our future, even proclaiming the gospel from a central gathering hub in our region, we're never going to, all that we have is all that we have now. It's all that we've ever had. It is carrying this message of Jesus Christ, the glorious God, the wonderful Savior and him crucified. That's the message we have. And Paul says, not only is he really a have a cruciform message, but he is a cruciform messenger. That is, Paul doesn't shape the message. The message shapes him. This is something very important that he's saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, who I am, what you saw when you encountered me, that was because the message 
shaped the messenger. Look what he says in verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much, much trembling. That's surprising, isn't it? I've almost made the opposite point going through Acts. But it's surprising that that's how he describes himself. I mean, as we've studied Acts, think about what we've read as we trace the ministry of Paul. He's enduring. He's got this powerful endurance. He just keeps going. He's stoned at Lystra, drug out of town, left for dead, walks back into the city and leaves the next day. He didn't stick around. He was weak. He wasn't a fool. So he did leave town, but that's what he did in Lystra. He is stripped and severely beaten with rods, publicly humiliated, physically tortured, beaten with rods in Philippi. He's chased out of Thessalonica. He went to Athens by himself and kind of like on holiday, just hanging out, starts witnessing to people and gets an open door to speak to the leading town council, the Areopagus at Mars Hill. He addresses them there. Now, we highlight his methodology. I did. But the reality is it didn't bring any kind of revival. They laughed. Some wanted to hear more. A few believed. But there was no radical revival. Athens wasn't Christianized in an afternoon because Paul brought the gospel to them. And then he leaves there and he goes to Corinth from Athens and he's by himself. And so when we read about Paul, he seems to be this sort of beast of a guy. Like he is impervious to all physical pain, all emotional suffering, all opposition. He's just like, none of that stops him. He just keeps going with the gospel. We see that in Paul. But then we get this other picture of Paul that he is this beast of a guy, but his self-definition, his self-understanding is weak. Study Paul and you will see, this is his self-definition. I am a weak man. He's not glorying, he's not, he's not, you know, Instagramming sort of humble brags. He's not that guy. He's not in Corinth taking selfies with a bunch of people behind him. All the converts in Corinth. Hashtag go Jesus. That's not Paul. He, he's not elevating himself or something like that. His self-definition isn't look what I'm accomplishing. His self-definition is, I was weak. When I was with you, I was in weakness. What was his weakness? Well, we don't know. There's a lot of speculation. I mean, when he preached in Galatia, it says that when I first came to you, I had a bodily ailment that was visible. It was uh, almost uh, embarrassing in nature. We don't know what it is. Some people think it was some kind of eye disease. Some people think it was a bowel disease. We don't really know. But when he was in Galatians, he, he preached and he was a physically weak man. That could be. He could be weak physically in Corinth. It, it could be that he is relatively impoverished in Corinth. I don't know if he ran out of money or if it was probably just because of the mission. He could reach people by working uh, and not just teaching full time. So he actually starts working in Corinth. Uh, starts build, making tents. That's his trade building, uh, putting together uh, tents. So may- maybe that's what he's doing. He could be impoverished. Um, it could be that he's just simply overwhelmed by the calling. We think of him as like some superhuman. He's called to take the gospel to the Gentile world. There's the grace of God on him, but there's a lot of weight. He says, I daily face the anxiety of all the churches. I mean, he, he walks around with a burden on him that's significant. It may be overwhelming. 
he battles fear here. He says he battles fear and trembling. And in, in Acts 18, we'll get to this in a few weeks when we get back to Acts, but it's very interesting. It says that he's uh, ministering in Corinth and then God gives him a vision. And this is what God says to him in the vision. This is verses nine and 10. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. That's telling, isn't it? Paul, don't stop talking. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So he's saying, look, Paul, don't be fearful. Don't stop talking. Nobody's going to physically attack you because I'm going to save a lot of people. I have a lot of people that are going to be mine in Corinth. And he stays for a year and a half preaching. That's pretty telling. If God has to come to him with that, I think it's just like Gideon, where God comes to him and shows him a sign. When he overhears, we studied that last week, when he overhears the Midianite army, and their dream that Gideon was going to defeat them. It was a sign that comforted him. I I think God is giving him a sign, a promise here. I know he's giving him a promise. No one's going to hurt you. Maybe that's why he's fearful and weak and trembling, because there's strong threats. No one's going to attack you. Don't be afraid. Don't go silent. Maybe he's been thinking, man, I don't know if this is, I need to get my team here, or maybe I need to go somewhere else, or maybe he's thought, I'm going to stop talking, and God says no. So he's fearful. He's trembling as he comes in to the city. He, uh, he didn't just have a cross-shaped message. He had a cross-shaped life. This is Paul. His, his life matches his meth- message. I proclaim a crucified Savior. I am a weak man. I'm a weak man. He knew something about taking up his cross and dying daily to experience the power of God. There's this wonderful picture over in 2 Corinthians. Turn there if you want to. 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul describes himself and his life and his ministry to the Corinthians. Where he's having to defend himself because they, they hate his weakness. They're embarrassed by his weakness. They discount his weakness. And he writes them and says, look, this, this, is, this is God's work in me. Verse 7, chapter 12, so to keep me, he he goes to heaven, has a vision of heaven. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He says that God allowed Satan to bring him a messenger, some kind of a harmful uh, thing that brought about weakness. And again, we don't know what that is. That could have been physical. That could have been the persecution. That could have been wherever he was. He lived with, you know, he kind of lived like a guy on the run that the Judaizers were always catching up to him and stirring up the crowds and opposing him. So it could have been that. We don't know. But what we do know is that he says, my weakness was a platform for God's strength. Most of us are looking for a platform to display our strength. I don't want to keep talking about it. I have no better illustration than social media, though. We want a platform. This is my strength. 
Paul says, I want a platform for God's strength. That means I need to be living aware and in touch and embracing all my weaknesses. And I need to be defined by them because in those weaknesses, I come to God and I encounter his power. Therefore, he says something crazy. I'm going to boast in them. This isn't an arrogance in self. This is a boast in weakness. He didn't tell us what it is, but that's the Lord. So we could all take our weaknesses and put them in that category. It's not just if you have an eye disease. Okay, you got an eye disease? That's the weakness he's talking about. You got anything else that doesn't match? No, he's saying whatever your weaknesses are, whatever your calamities are, whatever your hardships are, whatever the insults you face, whatever persecution. So there's clearly the sense of being opposed for the gospel. All of that, I'm going to glory in that. I'm going to glory in my weaknesses because then I am strong. He runs to weaknesses. He boasts about them. Uh, Look what else he says in verse 9 there. He says, I'll boast more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness. I'm not. Most of the time, I'm not content. I'm, I'm striving against it. I'm hiding it. I'm, I'm avoiding it. I'm dreaming of the day without weakness. Life will be great when that weakness is gone. It will be. And that day is called heaven. It will be. See, I want a theology of glory right now. Glory, just like heaven on earth. Glory is then. We have a theology of the cross for today. Die daily. Jesus said that. Take up your cross and die daily. That's, that's discipleship. It's death to myself so that I experience the life of God. The joy of Christ. The contentment of the Spirit. Communion with Jesus. That's something we never get if we're always running from weakness, hiding weakness, celebrating our human strength. But Paul runs to weakness. He boasts in them. He's content with them. He's a cruciform messenger and he experiences power with weakness. The cross shapes his life. And so you know what Paul knows? He knows grace and suffering. My grace is sufficient. Paul touched grace. Paul's impacted by the grace of God. Paul is sustained by grace. He doesn't have to face his own weaknesses in his own strength. That's a double weakness. But he faces his weakness and he experiences God's grace. After I preached on weakness last week, I approached someone in the congregation that I, I, I know enough of their story. I know enough of her story to know that when she's sitting in this congregation listening to a sermon, she's probably in severe pain, tremendously fatigued, and it's just a battle to be here. And, and I just went to her and I said, I, I want to thank you for your example, that you have looked to God in your weakness. You have trusted the Lord, and God empowers you, and you have such a, a, a wonderful heart for the Lord that radiates through your weakness. And she said to me, you know what? I wouldn't trade my experience because through it, I've experienced the grace of God and I know him in a way I never knew him before. It's not saying she would refuse prayer or wouldn't celebrate a healing. She's just saying, this is the path of weakness God chose for me. You may not have human weakness. You have a different weakness. I mean, physical weakness is what I meant to say. Her physical weakness, she said, I experienced the grace. I know him. What she's saying is what Paul said, his grace is sufficient. His grace is more than enough. He's sustaining me. I'm in touch with him. This is the Christian life. It's life through death. It's it's power through weakness. 
It's wisdom through what the world calls foolish. It's the exact opposite of everything around us. Paul lives with this theology of the cross. It's not just a message. It's the messenger. It's his life. It's shaped him. And he knows God's sustaining power in a way he would never know. He says elsewhere, I've learned to be content in every situation. I can have everything. I can have an abundance. I'm content. I can have a loss. I'm content. Jail. I'm content. Celebrating free, great memories in life, the best experiences you can imagine. Yeah, I'm content. Go to heaven. I'm content. He had that experience too. Why? Because whatever weakness he had, he runs and he receives from the Lord. So we have a cruciform, a cross-shaped message, a cross-shaped messenger. And then here's the last verses. We have a cross-shaped method. The message shapes the man, but it also shapes the method. Here's what Paul's saying. There's a reason I acted like I acted among you. There's a reason my ministry style is intentional. My message is on point. It's what God gave me, the gospel. But my style is intentional. It's it's the exact opposite of the style of this particular culture. He he says in verse 1, I didn't come proclaiming with lofty speech or wisdom. This is the language of rhetoric. He's saying, when I came to you, I didn't put on airs and act intellectual. When I came to you, I didn't come with some extravagant delivery, with some eloquent... I wasn't placing my hope in eloquent language so that I can master the language, so that I can drop this amazing rhyme that will just, whoa, blow you away. That's, I didn't come with trying to impress you with my, my oratory, my verbal skills. I, wasn't, I didn't come trying to be some fake, sophisticated guy, some intellectual. I didn't come, I I didn't come being slicked. It wasn't lofty speech. It wasn't wisdom. Here's the God of our age, polish. I didn't come overly polished, sort of slick, sort of everything just, you know, sort of squeaky clean. I, I didn't come with that. I just came and I was real. I told you about a crucified savior. I told you the God-man got executed for our sins. That's what I did. I told it plain. I told it simple. I told it clear. I told it often. Now, he's not saying I'm a bad speaker. You remember back in Lystra when he was uh, speaking and the Zeus worshipers all freaked out and they started worshiping? Do you remember what they called Paul? They worshiped Paul and said, he's Hermes. Hermes is the spokesman of the gods. Hermes is the god of oratory. So Paul had some game. He could speak. I mean, read what he writes. He's, he's, he could speak. People wanted to worship him as a god. So I, I think he could probably hold his own in a pulpit. He's just saying, when I came, that wasn't what I led with. That wasn't what I emphasized. I was clear. My method was clear speech because I didn't want you to be impressed with me. I wanted you to be impressed with Jesus. I didn't want to come into town and have the applause for me so that I run more applause than the other orator. I wanted all applause on Jesus. That means I need to get out of the way and point to him. And so I'm not going to come in and take all the cultural things that would impress everybody, which will distract from the gospel. I want to highlight the gospel. Look at verse four. He says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. This phrase, plausible words of wisdom is, is from the world of rhetoric as well. He's saying, I didn't rely on human wisdom. I didn't seek to persuade the audience through some kind of salesmanship. I wasn't using drama or manipulation. 
Was it trying to manipulate you? Here was my trust. I trusted in rather, verse 4, the demonstration of the Spirit. Demonstration of the Spirit. Now, I never would have known this, but I read a comment, several commentators, so I think it's true. It wasn't just one. said that this was actually a term in rhetoric for a proof. This demonstration was at the end of a well-argued case. The compelling point was called the demonstration. And so he said, when I came to you, I didn't argue this persuasive, dramatic, we're blown away by his style, his knowledge, his intellect. And then I gave the demonstration, the concluding moment, the point, the delivery that sealed the deal. I didn't do that. Here was my demonstration. The Spirit came in power. Here was my demonstration. The Holy Spirit reached into your dead heart and gave you life because you heard about a crucified Messiah and believed. The power of God came that your faith might not rest, verse 5, on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Because I came clear, because I came simple, because I came repeated, because I came focused on Jesus, you came away believing in Jesus, not believing in Paul. And so you see what Paul's saying is my method is intentional. My method is tied to my life weakness. It's tied to my message. They're all one package. God takes the messenger and ensures that he knows he's weak. And God leads him in this case to use a method that clearly points to Jesus. It doesn't mean that we never borrow anything from the culture at all. I mean, I'm speaking today. I'm not speaking like this. I have some passion in what I'm saying. I mean, I'm trying to speak in a way that's persuasive. It's not like we don't ever use any method of passion. He's not saying, don't prepare, don't be thoughtful, don't be passionate at all. What he's saying is, I spoke with plain language and sincere delivery, and I didn't trust that to convince you. I didn't trust human argumentation. I trust the power of the Spirit coming through the message of the gospel. That is my heart. He has a cross-shaped ministry. He's a cross-shaped man. He delivers a cross-shaped message. And what's the result? Power of God. Power of God. A cross-shaped message plus a cross-shaped messenger, which is any of us as witnesses, plus a cross-shaped method equals the power of God to convert, to change, to birth the church. And that's really what he says to them. That, that's his ultimate point, isn't it? Why are any of you Christians in Corinth? He's writing to Christians. Why are you saved? It wasn't because I had skills. I didn't have sweet oratorical skills. And so, therefore, you're a Christian. <clears throat> look, at the, look at the old Corinth. Look around. Everybody's pretty plain, pretty average. Everybody got saved from a simple message. I preach the gospel. So the proof of the pudding is in the eating. How are you converted? By what I preached. There are these other super apostles, these other rhetoricians that are coming around and saying, Paul's nothing, he's weak, his speech is unimpressive. Oh, he can write a good letter, but in person his speech is unimpressive. He's saying, why are you saved? God used unimpressive speech. God used the simplicity and the focus of the message of the gospel so that you are amazed by God and not the messenger. This is weakness. This is why Paul says, weakness is my calling card. You want to see people saved? That comes through weakness. You want to see lives changed? That comes through weakness, which points to the power of God. And so as we think about this for ourselves, our individuals and our church, and our church, I think, first of all, we want to freshly embrace the power of the gospel. Paul is so gospel-focused 
that he can say, I knew nothing else when I was among you. He could speak in that way, even though he talks about all kinds of things. It's tied to the gospel. I mean, here's the reality. I'm not amazing. You're not amazing. Welcome to Grace Church. That's your bear slogan. Welcome to Grace Church. You are not amazing. We are not amazing. Now, you're in the image of God, and there's something beautiful and wonderful about that. But we're not breathtaking. That's what he says to Corinth. How many of you are really noble and glorious? But we serve an amazing God. And when we can get over ourselves and over our deal and over who we are, and we can get on to Jesus, then the world can see that and be impressed by him. And when they encounter us, when they come among us, they say, well, yeah, they seem like great people. They love, we want to demonstrate the love of God. We want to love one another. We want to serve. We want to care. We want people to be aware of the love of God in us, but we want them to be aware of the love of God. We want them to celebrate the gospel. We want them to, just like Paul could write to them and say, why are you a Christian? Because God saved you through my gospel. And that comes through acknowledging our weaknesses, through recognizing our weaknesses. God knows we've got them. Everyone around you knows you've got them. If you're married, your spouse knows you've got them. People who encounter our church, they know we've got them. People that have left our church, they know we've got them. We've got weaknesses. Paul says, obviously, if it's an area of sin, we want to repent and change and ask the Lord to change us. But we want to acknowledge those and trust the Lord for those. That is our only hope for our city, for our children, for for our neighbor. Two weeks ago, when Paul was in, well, not really in our time, two weeks ago, but two weeks ago when Paul was in the Areopagus, whoa, you lost me there. Uh, you were there? Okay. Uh, um, you're weak mentally. You're delusional. So uh, that's pretty weak. Um, no. Two weeks ago when we were saying that, I talked about the need for Christians to be like Paul and be culturally nimble. And I don't want to back off of that at all. I would want to encourage that. But I do want to nuance that based on here. When I said on this passage, based on when I said that, I said Paul could connect and relate and love and serve and care for all kinds of people. He could go to the temple and relate with legalistic Jews that opposed him and convince them of the grace of God. He could lead women to the Lord. Several times he met with women, which is different than today in a group with women, different than today when women would have been viewed, uh, perhaps looked down upon in some ways. Paul could connect with them in the gospel. Paul could connect with all kinds of people. He could connect with the intellectually elite of his day and the professors, the philosophy professors of his day, he addresses them. So Paul can relate because he cares and because he's knowledgeable with all kinds of people. And we talked about when we look at the idols around us, there's several responses. We can envy them. We can be self-righteous towards them. Paul wasn't self-righteous. He didn't envy them. Or we can be immersed in them. And Paul does not do that. That's the point of Corinthians. Paul is not immersed in the culture so that his methodology looks just like the culture. That's what he's saying. I'm different than the Corinthians. I understand you. I know you. I love you. I can relate to you. I'm among you, but I ain't like you in terms of I'm light in the darkness. There's a way that we're like our culture, the way we're different. And he is like, he is light in the darkness. And so he will not take the cultural methodology and use it because it would obscure the message. It would make it unclear. It would draw attention to himself. So Paul will always contextualize unless the contextualization will hinder the message of the gospel. Paul will always 
contextualized. He will go to his context. He'll always make the gospel understandable in that context. So he goes to a synagogue. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the prophets. He goes to the Greeks. He's talking about creation. He takes the message and he contextualizes. That means he makes it understandable. But he will not take the values of the culture and use them in the way he does here. He does not, he did, that he won't hear. He does not take their speaking style. He does not take what they're amazed with, what they're impressed with. He says, I'm going to be different than that. One author, commentator, David Jackman wrote the following. He said, the church in the West during the last century has been involved in an increasingly desperate search, trying to find what it is that will really impact the culture. But all the time, the answer is staring us in the face. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. God's power in human weakness. By all means, let's be relatable. But by all means, let's not take the ways of the world and the world itself and seek to immerse ourselves and embrace that as the means. It is Jesus and it is Jesus Christ crucified. We don't trust our methods. We trust the gospel. We trust the gospel. And even as we think about moving forward, I'm going to talk to you about, I'm talking about, you know, our vision to move forward. Even as we think about that, and I think about, I walk around Frisco where I think about building out there. I just think, you know, that, that's not a hope. If that went away tomorrow. That, that's not our hope. So it's, not our, it's not our hope. It's a tool. It's a location. It's a tool. It, it's a, it, I use the metaphor of a megaphone. It just gives broader, broader audience for the gospel. It's all it is is a tool. It's just a tool that says, man, have your attention, please. It just, it just spreads the word a little bit. It's a door. We have a single door. We have a single front door now. It's a double door. It just makes room for a few more people to know, to hear, to, to, to receive. Weakness doesn't mean we want limited exposure for the gospel. Paul was all about getting the gospel to everyone. He says, I became all things to all men that by all means I could save some. So Paul said, he's talking to everybody. He's on vacation. He's talking in the marketplace. He's talking in the synagogue. He wants everybody to hear. He wants the broadest voice. So weakness to him isn't, well, I just want to tell one person because I wouldn't want this to get out. I'm weak. No, he wants it to get out to everybody. Paul is all about exposure at the risk of his own life, repeatedly getting the gospel to everybody. So broad exposure is not weakness. It's not what we're saying. We want to be broadly exposed. We want to get the gospel to as many people. We want to connect with as many people. We want to serve and love and minister and befriend and announce the good news to as many people as possible. So let's freshly embrace the power that the gospel is amazing and let's reaffirm that that is our hope. That is my hope as a parent. That is your hope as an employee. That is my hope as a neighbor. That message, God uses that message and he wakes people up. And sometimes I can be so concerned about, I can have the right answer and I can have the right approach and we've got to be just right. You know, the simple message, Jesus died for sinners and was raised again. That's the power. It's not me. That's the power. And we also want to freshly embrace our weakness. Let's freshly embrace the gospel. Let's freshly embrace our weakness. God comes to Paul in his weakness in Corinth. He gives him a vision. Don't be afraid. I'm protecting you. I'm calling you. And Paul boasts in his weakness. Where are you weak today? Didn't you ask us that last week? Yeah, you might have new weaknesses. I don't know. Where are you weak today? Where do you need the Lord? Wherever you're weak, pray. Ask God for strength. It's appropriate to ask God to remove a circumstance, to ask for healing. Paul prays for three different times, which probably is a sign that he prayed, you know, a lot. 
Uh, he prayed and God didn't remove the thorn. And so he boasted in it and was content. I, I can't say that God will remove whatever the thorn is in your life. But I can say we pray. That's why we have prayer at the end. We do pray. We start with prayer. We ask for help. We ask God to change the circumstance or to give us grace, sufficient grace for the circumstance to walk through it. My grace is sufficient. So Lord, either change this or give me the power to endure and to be content and to boast in you in the midst of it. That's, that's how we pray. And if he doesn't change it, we, well, then we just press on by his strength and in his grace. So where do you find your weakness? Admit your limitations. Admit your, admit your limitations physically, mentally, spiritually. Confess your sins. Those are two different things in some cases. Weaknesses, some weaknesses are, are not necessarily moral issues at all. If you're sick, that's not a moral issue. If you've got limited, you're limited in some way, that, that's not. Sins are a moral issue, but we admit our failures, we admit our weaknesses, we admit our sins, we confess our sins, we ask for help with our weaknesses, we trust God, and we watch his power show up to sustain us, to equip us, to change us. A lot of us in the room are parents, and if, you, if you're a parent, I assure you, you will face, if you haven't yet, you will face significant limitation. You will feel your weaknesses. You will feel your weaknesses. And I've, I have found my, the greatest power of God comes when I acknowledge my weaknesses. There's a time a number of years ago where we walked through a very difficult situation. I did as a parent. Ginger did. My wife's a parent. One of our children did. And I found in the midst of that that the greatest power came in a, several different occasions where I made public acknowledgement of that weakness from a pulpit or from a music stand at a meeting or somewhere or with leaders or with friends or whatever. I found just admitting it, hey, I don't have it all together. I need God's help. I don't see it clearly. I can't even diagnose all the problems. I just need God to open my eyes, as Jeff talked about. Would you pray for me? Could you help me? I'm weak. I found the grace of God sustaining us through hard times. Maybe you're weak as a witness. It's not about your knowledge, your eloquence, your, that you've got all the apologetic arguments written on a card and memorized. God bless you if you do, but it, that's not going to be the answer. This will be Jesus and him crucified. Be real. Be transparent. You know, that might be more powerful than your argument. Being real. Weakness. Maybe you're weak as an employee. Whatever it is. The last idea and we're done. Expect the power of God. If you'll notice, the the whole point of the passage is that not that Paul ended with weakness, but that the weakness led to the power of God. A church gets birthed. These people are saved. They're confused. They're opposing him. But they're Christian. And a church is up and going. God moves through weakness to display his power. The way we get to the power of God is through weakness. The way Jesus got to resurrection is through crucifixion. It is the weakness of God that introduces, our weakness that introduces us to the power of God. I said that wrong. The message of weakness doesn't mean no power. It means God's power in our weakness. It's shifting our reliance away from ourselves to encounter divine strength. Paul's content in weakness. He boasts in weakness. Why? Because that's where the power of God is. And he wants the power of God. People are converted. We're sustained. We're changed. We're encouraged. We're strengthened by the power of God. And that comes through acknowledging, embracing, at times, as he says, boasting, being content in our weaknesses before God. So may we learn these lessons. Oh, we will learn these lessons. 
we can learn them the easy way. You can pay me now or you can pay me later, as the old commercial used to say. We will learn them one way or the other. But let's humble ourselves before God and ask for his help and watch, expect his power on display. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.